0: Western. Hello and welcome to another episode of Outlook. We're recording this one on January the 14th, 2021. We'll likely be airing early February as my co-host here, Carrie, was great this year. Right at the beginning of the year, booked a bunch of guests right away. So thanks, Carrie, for that.
1: No problem. <laughs> I got a jump start on things.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in on this Monday morning. If you're listening Um,
0: live on the station, well, kind of live, but pre-recorded live. Um, But if not, (laughs) it is available as a podcast after, so you may be listening. Who knows what time of the day? It makes things (laughs) a little more confusing. But uh, yeah, Carrie, you've lined up a great, interesting guest for today. So perhaps you would like to talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so today our guest on Outlook is Megan Gilmore, and she is a journalist. And hi, Megan. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. So uh, Megan uh, does um, work with AMI, and we've talked about AMI before on the show.
0: Yeah, we had um, Kelly McDonald on actually a few weeks back. So
1: yeah, she's also written for CBC and the Walrus, TVO, TV Ontario, uh, and uh, also
0: Faith, Faith Today. Today.
1: Yeah, and um, probably he other to-
0: places that we're missing because I saw a few others online as well. so.
1: Yeah, so yeah, So she's um, doing great work here in Canada uh, as a journalist, so I wanted to talk to her as a writer. I find what she's been, what she's been doing interesting, and we've had some t- chats before, her and I. Um, but Brian, I think this is the first time you've...
0: Yeah, I've heard Megan on AMI a couple times, but yeah, I've never, I've never spoke with you until today, so thanks so much for coming on.
2: Well, thanks for listening um, uh, to the programs. Actually, Kelly was my introduction to AMI. I got involved with them through a chance encounter, uh, a summer, the summer before my last year of university, I worked at the CNIB Lake Joseph center and he was up covering an event and we started talking about our love for the Toronto blue Jays. And that is what led to, you know, that's how I got with them. So I've been with them since 2016, I believe. Um, but yeah, it's all based off of a, a chance uh, encounter at, at a summer job.
0: Right. And for our listeners, a- AMI stands for Accessible Media Incorporated, just in case you don't remember.
1: Uh, yeah, it's the TV and the radio station. So you work for, have you worked with both? or?
2: So my primarily? main work is with AMI Audio, which is the radio station part of the organization. And it's literally a radio station on your TV. It's included with basic cable packages and you would go on be like a black screen and you would hear people talking. Um, So essentially a podcast coming through your TV. So that, that's who I work with. However, one of the shows that I appear regularly on now with Dave Brown, which is the, the morning show on AMI audio. It's also broadcast on AMI TV simultaneously. So that's really my only TV appearance. And I, I just sit at a chair, you know. Um, so it's it's not like um, any intensive TV work. And that's like
1: being a journalist with, with the written word and then being uh, um, audio or TV. So I'm sure it's different, all those things.
2: Yeah, it's a little different. I had really good mentorship when I started on The Morning Show. I, I originally started with them back in on the morning show back in 2019 uh they just needed somebody to fill in for some people who were away and the host of the program at that time was called live from studio five and the the co-host of the program mike ross who is the pa announcer for the toronto maple Leafs, that's his other job he just taught me like there's cameras in the room but don't focus on the cameras like if you make if you're spending all your time trying to play to the camera, it's not going to work. So just be natural, just talk, and it'll go well, mm. which is great. Because right. I can't look straight at things. So I was I didn't even know where the cameras were. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have trouble with I,
0: that
2: I, too. So. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work out. Um, so it, yeah, that's how we just view it as you you speak as if it's radio, and then there's a whole dedicated TV video team that does the graphics and B-roll. So there'll be pictures up while we're talking, that sort of thing. And we just do our job and keep the conversation going.
1: Well, because we thought about having like a YouTube channel for Outlook so that we was just like visually, we don't know how that's going to look or how you would...
0: Yeah, I mean, on our year anniversary show, um, one of the... people who worked there at the time when we were still going into the studio before all this other stuff. um, He he filmed us uh, doing our one year episode and we put it up on YouTube. And it just it definitely does help uh, to have that that media out there because, you know, a lot of obviously a lot of people are visual learners and just in general, like having that visual aspect to it. So it just it helps you widen your audience for sure to have both. So that's great.
1: So speaking of not being able to look at the camera, uh, do you want to maybe tell us a bit about what your blindness diagnosis is or when when you discovered it?
2: Um, so I was uh, diagnosed with retinopathy of uh, prematurity uh, a few months after I was born, I guess. So I don't remember anything about that. Um, and yeah, so I, I was born legally blind. i um, been legally blind my whole life. I have about 20 over 200, which means that objects that um, people with 2020 vision can see standing 200 feet away from I. I have to be 20 feet from the same object to see it and I'll likely miss some details, but 20 over 200 is, is the cutoff. Uh, that's, at that point in Canada, you're considered legally blind. So I would be one of those people who would, there's different ways you can describe the experience kind of like straddling two camps yeah, in, yeah in a it's sense, right on the line. Or, yeah. yeah, you're right on the line. I heard one man describe it once as you're a fly that's caught between the in and the outdoor. <laughs> and you just, <laughs> right? I thought it was great. And you just kind of uh, circle in and out. So then when people ask, like, when did you discover it? And uh-huh. when you're born with it, yeah. it's all you know, right? So I think there's you become aware of different things at different times depending on the situation Uh, or the people or what's just going on in your life at that time. Um, So that's interesting for me to like, look back. and like, Oh, like when was was the first time I realized that there was something different about the way I was experiencing the world than the way other people were? Uh, When was the first time that that felt bad, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it, I think it changes over time.
0: Carrie, I was gonna say, so you because you were born with um, with more vision, obviously than me. We talk about this on the show a lot. Where I just had light mm-hmm. perception, and I still have the same amount. So, how do you know? Happen to know, Carrie, how much vision you used to have? Um, as far as the twenty out of or two hundred, or how it's measured.
1: That's funny. I don't even really remember. It was I was so much younger at the time, and I so I don't even know if it really mattered to me back then. And then I so I just don't, and I I don't remember it. It doesn't carry over from back then. Uh, it right. just got worse. Right. That's all I knew is it just got worse. It's just, but it's that's... one of those
0: things that we talk about and it's really hard for anyone to explain. You know, when someone hears blindness, they say, how blind are you or something? It's right. it's a very hard thing to explain. And I know, Carrie, you used to be able to see quite a bit more, but it doesn't sound to me like you could see ever as much as, as Megan. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, maybe not quite. It's hard uh, to know again, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I tell people that the most natural question I hear when people find out about my visual impairment is how much can you see? And I understand that that's their natural response. And I always tell them like, that is the hardest question Mm. to answer. And then sometimes I just become super vigilant when I'm out with people who want to talk about it more, trying to find something in our environment that I can use as a example. So I used to use uh, pop machines a lot. actually, And I tell people like, oh, I know that like, let's say for example i'm like i know that the top left hand button is coke because it's red mm-hmm. but i can't actually read that it's coke
1: but you can see red yeah but i can see yeah, the red. you can see the red yeah i'm like so, so. Uh,
2: like a lot of things like you just you just memorize it and you go through that way. but i actually could not read that to you i just know that's red that's the coke red that's the button i push if i want coke
1: yeah, and for me, it was always signs, specifically driving at night or in the mall with the bright mm-hmm. words over the stores. I used to yes. point that out at, at sitting on a bench with my grandf- grandfather, I remember. like, Yeah, there's, you know, Byway or whatever you want to say.
2: Right, yeah. Byway. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, so for all you youngins, there was this Canadian department store called Byway that we used to go to. It was kind of like Zeller's Walmart. Or Giant Tiger. Yeah. Yeah um it was great spelt b-i-w-a-y
0: right yeah we're all we're all born Um, in the 80s i think so we're all kind of in the same generation here so uh, yeah yeah
1: what would you think what do you think when people talk about the term legally blind like when you hear that term people sometimes are baffled by what does legally blind mean
2: Right. They are. And I understand why you would be baffled because it sounds like what the government had to certify the, or can you illegally be blind? Like, is right. there <laughs> is there a law? How does this work? Um, I actually have really grown to embrace it over probably the last decade and a bit because for me, it I think, helps people understand that actually they're My eyes are damaged in a very considerable way that is not going to get fixed. And this is more than just I wear glasses. Like I do wear glasses, but when I'm out in public, if I don't have my cane with me or some other large vision aid, you don't know. You don't know that this is actually a significant permanent disability. And it's more than, oh, I just put on a pair of glasses and everything gets better. It's not. So I do like for me that it, allows me to be able to explain to people that yes, this is a serious lifelong permanent condition and you need to respond accordingly, but also that legally lets me explain to them, but I do have some workable vision and that's um, as your listeners are probably very aware now that they've spent some time with your podcast the past few years, vision loss is such a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to explain to people where you fit on that can be really hard And for me, Legally Blind is a helpful way to explain it better for people.
1: Mm -hmm. And you said you use a cane? Is it it an identity, like a cane, or do you actually use it? Um,
2: It's an identity cane. So one of those smaller ones that Mm -hmm. isn't supposed to touch the ground and it can like fold up, it's collapsible, which is super fun if you can get it to like fold out and all come together in one. Yeah, Um, It's a nice party trick. (laughs) It fits in, I really like winter, actually, because I like tall boots, and it fits in my boots.
1: Oh. Right? Right?
2: But then in the summertime, because I'm not the most organized person, I don't have a designated cane spot. (laughs) So, uh, my roommates are constantly hearing me, like, running around, being like, I can't find my cane. Do you know where my cane is? Uh,
1: Right.
2: So, um, I I like winter for that. But I got got my cane when I was 15, and, like, many people who were born with a... um, significant visual impairments, and then have to get their canes later on. Um, let's just say there were some arguments between myself and my parents about whether or not this was really a necessary
0: thing. I think I read in one of your articles about where you were talking specifically about Jean Little. You talked about yep. and um, yep. starting to have to to use a cane in, as a teenager and kind of how it was a bit of a, a you know trying to convince you to do it at, at first was maybe not always the easiest thing. But I think that's common for smart. a lot of a lot of people.
2: Yeah, it is pretty common thing. And Jean Little was uh, a Canadian children's author who grew up in Guelph for most of her life. She passed away in April of 2020. And, um, and one of her memoirs, Little by Little, she talks about getting a cane and using it in her first year of university. And I remember reading that years later. Um, and I'd, like, I read the, I first read the book when I was about 10. And then I read it again when I was older and I had my cane. And I remember like reading that Sentence about, you know, I got a white cane, but once I found friends, I stopped using it. That's how she describes it at school. Um, I just thought that was really beautiful. And then also realizing that so many people have gone through this. The author Ryan Knighton, who did Cockeyed, uh, that book also describes his experience getting a cane. And there, yeah, there's this very small genre of literature of people discussing their emotions about white canes.
1: First white cane. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big genre.
2: Well, because all, right. all my friends were like doing driver's ed, and I had some orientation and mobility instructor coming to my house reteaching mm. me how to cross the street. And I was like, "This is so embarrassing." Uh, but, uh, my my O and M instructor was great; she was lovely. But the as a fifteen year old, you're like, "I know how to cross the street. Like, what's going on?"
1: That's true.
0: Right, but in the same—you mean in a deeper sense, which is hard hard to realize as a teenager, probably. But like, you know, it's it is for the same purpose. It's kind of interesting how you would learn. You did end up learning that around the same time as as your friends were going to through driver's ed, because it's the same thing thing that we're we're gaining our independence by having Mm -hmm, these skills, mm -hmm. right? So it is a similar a a similar thing.
1: Yeah. So as as embarrassing as embarrassing as a white king can be for a teenager, right? Like, it's not as cool as getting your driver's license, so.
2: Yeah, it's true. Not- no, nobody. Yeah, nobody throws you a party yeah. for swiping. But um, yeah,
0: yeah. So maybe if but- you want to talk, maybe a little bit more about um, growing up, where you grew up. Um, I was also curious if your your vision has it has it changed since since you were born, or has it been stable? Or
2: sure. Um, so I'll start with the vision question first. Um, my vision stayed relatively stable, as far as I know. Um, most of my sight is in my left eye. My right eye is almost completely blind, um, which means like this past August when my ophthalmologist said, you know, we need to remove that cataract that's on your right eye. My response was, what cataract?
1: Um,
2: Like I didn't even know it was there. So uh, that surgery was uh, in December. I think today is my last day of eye drops. Um, uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Um, But you'll hear people who have cataracts saying like, my eyesight is deteriorating as the cataract is growing and they can really notice it. I didn't notice any of that. Like I actually need a professional to tell me there's something wrong with this. Uh, so most of my sights in my left eye, I had a uh, some trauma to my left eye when I was 12. Um, my retina burst, uh, blood vessels on it burst. Um, so there's some internal bleeding there. So we've just had to be careful with making sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, but it's been pretty stable most of my life. Um, the only thing that's really changed is different vision aids and technology as you grow and technology changes. Um, just, just working with that. I like to think I could open a small museum with all the different (laughs) magnifying devices that are still scattered (laughs) around my parents' house. Um, but I, but I'm not sure. Um, and then, so I was born in London, Ontario. Um, so go Knights and Mustangs. Um, and, uh, then my family, when I was seven, uh, we moved to Brantford, Ontario, but an hour away, uh, uh, near Hamilton. Um, and yeah, so I grew up in Brantford in the mid nineties, which wasn't the city's finest hour in terms of its like economics and, and all that. And uh, um, then I, yeah, I grew up there. I then uh, so when I gra- was graduating high school, I really wanted to go to Western, and my dad had gone to Teachers College there, and like my grandparents were in London, and London seemed much cooler than Brantford. Um, and then I actually ended up staying in the city. Uh, Wilfrid Laurier University opened a campus in Brantford in 1999, and that's where I enrolled at school. Um, my parents told me go for one year, and then after that, you can decide wherever. I uh, ended up staying for five. So I moved out of the city after graduation. I was like 21, 22 or what I was. Um, yeah. I live in Toronto now. i um, been here since 2013, which is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and in my early twenties, I lived in Hamilton, Ontario. Then I moved to Whitehorse, Yukon for my first journalism job at a newspaper there. And I've also spent, I had a summer contract in St. John, New Brunswick about five years ago. Um, so professionally, I've, I've lived and worked in three different regions of Canada. So did you have siblings or is it just you? Um, no, I'm the youngest of three. So my parents had three in three years. I have an older brother who's three years uh-huh. older than me, a sister who's two years older than me, and they are both married with the two children each.
1: Yeah, it's um, like our family.
2: And uh, yeah, so they live in different parts of Ontario. Um, but my dad's family is still very much in the London St Thomas area. I have a big sense of like emotional attachment to the five one nine area code. Every time I have to dial somebody's number for work and it's a five one nine, I get so happy.
1: Yeah, Brian's cell phone is a different area code. I'm always like, "What?" Yeah, there's what? a
0: newer one now in London at the two like, two six. Two two six. Yeah, but yep. Yeah, too bad I don't have the good old school five one nine.
1: But well, we like to have um, local guests here on Outlook when we can, and technically, sort of in a way, you are. Mm-hmm. the London connection there
0: yeah Toronto's still close too but London makes it even closer with being on Radio Western and everything here so that's great um so yeah maybe talk, touch a little bit more on your education growing up um throughout um elementary school into high school and into um into university and also how vision your vision issues were dealt with throughout school and how um the tools that were available and just the support that you got and everything relating to that
2: so I have a pretty interesting story. Um, my parents chose uh, not, to te- not to send me to W. Ross McDonald School for the Blind. Um, I'm not even sure if I would have qualified given the amount of vision I had, but they made the decision fairly early on that that's not what they would do. And so they chose to integrate me. Uh, this would have been early 90s because I was born in 88. And uh, my parents chose to enroll. My siblings and I at uh, privately funded protestant christian schools and actually that most of my life they were actually housed in the same building as the churches we attended and a lot of the teachers also went to church with us so it was very much kind of a small family feel and because the classes were so small i think i felt like for the most part my vision loss was just kind of integrated into the classroom um uh, in, in, in London, the school we attended the elementary school, my dad taught at the high school. Mm-hmm. And these were people who, some of them, uh, they knew my family and they would have remembered when I was born. And when I was in the NICU at St. Joe's hospital, back when they had a NICU, um, the neonatal, neonatal intensive care unit. These are people who'd gone there. They visited me. They prayed for me. So it was like very much like a family thing, um, and then moved to Brantford and, as I mentioned, Brantford is home to W. Ross McDonald School for the Blind. And I didn't go there. So I think later on in life, and this is something that I may actually explore more in some writing at some point in my life, there was this sense of, wait, there's the blind school here, but you don't go there. Mm-hmm. and But you have this visual impairment. So where do you fit in, in the quote unquote blind community, if you want to use that language? Um, so I was kind of always in the back of my mind, not like, I didn't really dwell on it. But every once in a while, you know, like somebody make a comment of like, oh, so you really shouldn't be at our school. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. no. Um, but again, like super sm- a smaller school, um, uh, teachers who knew me, for the most part, it was pretty good. Um, grade seven and eight was probably the hardest in terms of accommodation. It was coming obvious that I needed um, more things, which in my case would be like different textbooks, um, like larger print formats. Um, and there were some, like some school things that I found really hard and challenging, but because I didn't go to a public school, I wasn't in the public system and I didn't go to W Ross. I was in this weird crack yeah. that how do you access services? Um, so, uh, thankfully there were some staff at W Ross who thought it was ridiculous that there was a student who couldn't get assessments because her parents chose to enroll her at a private school that, um, more closely aligned with their family's beliefs and values. So, uh, there were literally staff from W Ross who took, as far as I understand it, they took, they, they were on a day off and they would come to school and do assessments There for me, um, which was really helpful. And then high school, I went to a small, very small Christian high school with less than 30 students. And my father was the principal and taught many of my classes. So I think that's really what made my high school experience unique. And not the fact that I had a visual impairment. Although it is super funny as a child and as a student when your dad like forgets that you have a visual impairment in class. And you're just like, hey, dad, like I can't see that. Can you read that out for me? And then he gets flustered because he obviously wants to make it better for you as a father. And is like, oh, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? I'm like, dad, literally just read out what you wrote <laughs> on the board and I will write it down and all will be fine. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. It's Okay. Um, but then that also meant they, I learned later that there were little things that my teachers had always been doing or accommodations that they knew that they could offer me that they'd just been integrating naturally without me knowing it or we determined that I didn't actually need those. But it, they always knew you can give Megan extra time on exams. I had an excellent grade six uh, social studies and geography teacher who just kind of learned like pretty quickly that longitude and latitude and maps were not going to be my friend. Um, so she like modified some assignments, um, kind of deal to make sure that I understood the concepts. Um, but yeah, for, for the most part, it was pretty, it was very much like a family affair until university. Really? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very Speaking interesting because of- at, at, f- <laughs> at first I was like, oh, you were integrated, just like Carrie and I were as well. So I thought, you know, this would be very similar. But with the private school and everything being yeah. a bit smaller and everything, that, that brings a whole di- new perspective into it. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we never really explored and spoken with anybody. I don't know what, what it's like with a private school, with a religious type school, um, what the kind of yeah. services you're you're able to get there. So. Yeah,
2: it can be a little different. I think, uh, and I'm not an expert in this, but I know for me, the biggest thing has to do with how the teachers view disability and how they view students. So when you're coming from the perspective of like every human being is made in the image of God and is worthy of value and dignity, then that has a whole different way of how you approach disability in the sense of like, no one did anything wrong here. We're not, you know, like this isn't, we're not going to pass blame at anyone. This is the way this person is made and we're going to work hard so that they can use the way that use the body they've been given to the best of its ability and it's full functioning. Um, So that also means if you have classmates who are going to take more of the bullying route, I think the teachers in some cases are very quick to come down on that and be like, you don't do that. That's not, it's not okay. Um, Yeah. So for me, that was, that was helpful. But then growing up, legally blind in a city where it, for many people is known as the city with the school for the blind and you don't go there. Yeah. That's then that raises whole, this question yeah. of like, where do you fit in? Right. Um, and that's, that's yeah. probably something that I will always live with. And I've now just become very comfortable with that. Um, of the, they, yep, I will always live with that question.
1: Yeah. Whenever we hear somebody say that they, their parents moved them to Brantford right around the time right. you kind of said, yeah,
2: right you, you, you,
1: you always assume. That. That that it's for them to go to the school for the blind and still be able to maybe live at home or something, but, uh, not always, I guess. No,
2: not always. So yeah. And it's been, um, I think, and we can get into this more there. I think professionally, and that's actually probably helped me a lot as a journalist, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always been there. And I stink at hockey. So it was like, you don't go to school for the blind and you clearly had no idea who Wayne Gretzky was until he retired. Like, what are you doing in this? Really? So, um, yeah
0: so baseball yeah. over hockey then for you for yeah. interests yeah same here it's
2: easier to follow
0: yeah exactly i, I actually only got into baseball uh, quite late about uh five or six years ago when i was 26 i guess so um but yeah i enjoy it very much so we're gonna definitely get into megan's um, amazing journalism and all of that uh more so in the second half we have about a minute left here for the the first half of today's show we are speaking with megan gilmore um journalist and amongst many other things, and uh,
2: am I am I reporter, is that what you call? Yeah am I uh, for nowadays, Brown, it's an ami accessibility reporter. and then I'm also a monthly contributor to Kelly and Company, which mm-hmm. is the show Kelly McDonald hosts So if you want to hear more about him, just look up Outlook in your podcast player and go through the archives. Yeah, thank you.
0: Awesome. Yeah. for anyone who is listening, uh, if you do want to find our podcast, it's available at Outlook on Radio Western on all podcast services. So, all right, I think we're going to take a quick break here now for some promos, and we'll be right back with Megan Gilmore and more Outlook.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Outlook here on Radio Western or on any podcast uh, platform at a future date. And we are speaking today with Megan Gilmore. She's a journalist and So I I guess at first, I guess we really technically first knew about her. um, When we were all young, our parents or my, our mothers um, started uh, something, a small group of parents in the, in the sort of London area called child, child light. I don't know if any of you guys have remember anything about that. I don't really. So I'm told.
2: I remember a little bit. I was actually emailing my mom about that this week uh, to get memories. So she said that she's, she was she started near the beginning. I don't know if she was one of the founders, but mm-hmm. she was pretty there, pretty much there from the ground up. And what Childlight did is their goal was to provide services for preschool age children who have some form of vision loss. At that time, and this would have been again like late 80s, early 90s you couldn't get services through the government. So whichever ministry at the time was supposed to take care of that, they didn't give services to your children until your child was like five or the the Canadian national Institute for the blind CNIB also did not provide early intervention services. Then they do now, but not when we were that age. So a group of parents got together and decided that they wanted to fill in the gap. And I guess going back to what I was saying before about, When you straddle those lines between having vision loss and having sight all at the same time. I think there were a few times when I was hanging out with other childlike kids where I would realize that I had more sight than them Mm. and that this was different. And so there would be moments where I didn't always feel like I really understood the group and I was just confused um but I was also I think probably generally confused about a lot of things as a child um but I don't like my mom helped um or this one time I really loved Sesame Street and I really loved a Big Bird mm-hmm. and they wanted to put a braille alphabet on the child light office wall and my mom and I went out and got like a Braille alphabet with Sesame Street characters kind of Ooh. on it, or, like, Big Bird and Little Bird were there somehow. And I do remember her, like, making me – she was very intent about this. Like, you have to feel every letter. So even though you don't read books like this, other kids do, and you need to know what that is. Okay. Um, so she was really big on that. Um, She had a friend at the time, Mary Randall, who's a former teacher who was mm-hmm. completely blind and had a guide dog – And, like, Mary would come over to our house all the time, and, like, she helped me learn to cross-stitch, kind of, and uh, uh, I really wanted a Polly pocket. They were really big then, and they were also, like, the teeniest, tiniest things known to man. (laughs) But I really wanted one because my sister wanted one, so clearly... And I was adamant that I should have one too, out of a sense of justice. And my parents were like, we don't know if this is a good idea because you're going to lose it. And Mary was like, oh no, like she'll learn how to see it other ways. So I think she was instrumental in helping me get my first Polly Pocket. Mary Randall, if you're listening, that <laughs> changed my life. So um, yeah, but even like even like from a young age, like I think I did have an awareness of, I'm not doing everything like my brother and sister Mm -hmm. But I'm not doing everything like these blind kids. Okay. And I didn't, I just didn't have words for it. I don't really dwell on it. You just kind of like, okay, like, I'm still going to play with you. So we'll just carry on with life. Carry on. Yep.
1: So going from um, childhood there to later in life, when, or whenever, I'm not sure. When did you um, get into journalism? When did you decide you wanted to...
2: Yeah. So I didn't want to at first. I wanted to study English. I did. Actually, my, du- my undergraduate is a double major in English and journalism. Um, I had a high school teacher, not my dad, another high school <laughs> teacher, um, encouraged me to consider journalism. I think he actually wrote my parents an email or somehow. and was like, Megan needs to consider this. I know she doesn't want to, but she should. Um, and then it was my first semester of university. I went to a lecture about grace and, uh, they were talking about several things. And one was, um, uh, religion and religion and news broadcasting and, um, how the news covers religious stories. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm a Christian and I'd like to write, you know, maybe I should think of journalism. So I switched into journalism at the end of my first year of university. So I uh, kind of did that second year slump uh, moment where you don't know like what you're doing at school. I kind of did that early. And yeah, so then I uh, volunteered at the student paper all throughout the rest of my journalism uh, journalism degree as an undergrad. Um, and one of the articles I wrote for the paper won, uh, it's called the David S. Barr Award. It's a, an award for student journalism given by Communication Workers of America Newspaper Guild, which is the large newspaper union based out of the states um so i had an article that won that uh, in 2011 unanimously um so yeah i guess that's kind of like when it's when it started For that, so what,
1: what didn't you why didn't you want to you think
2: at first i thought it was boring boring yeah i was just like this sounds boring i don't want to use articles what kind of thing did you want to do with a youngish
1: degree did you have
2: novel Right, I think so. As we mentioned before in the in the, in the earlier podcast, we talked about Jean Little, who's um, was a Canadian children's author that I grew up reading, mm-hmm. and she um, was born cross-eyed. She would lose all her sight um, as an adult. She always had like some light perception, but it was, um, I think she had cataracts probably too. Um, well, she yeah, she had glaucoma uh, in her thirties, and then. Um, So I'd grown up reading her books and I liked writing. So I think there was part of me that wanted to be a children's book author or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I also wanted to get married and have kids. And Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd volunteered overseas a couple of times in high school in the summers. And I I really liked that. And I wanted to give other teenagers the same experience that I'd had. Um, So yeah, journalism just, I don't know, it just seemed kind of boring. Um, But then when I switched into it and got involved in it, I, I did not actively consider how my visual impairment would impact my career prospects until probably the very end. And and I guess that's,
0: I, I guess that's something that would differ a little bit. The fact that you could see a bit more so that wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't maybe be faced with some of those thoughts as early as other people, perhaps.
2: Right. And I was going to school in my hometown and I was reporting on issues related to my hometown. The The story that won the David S. Barr Award is it was about a municipal redevelopment project for a couple blocks in downtown Brantford on, on Colburn Street. For those of you who know the area, south side of Colburn Street, that's as local as you can get. Right? Like my reporting was walking up and down these few blocks, knocking on every door I could find. So I like I just didn't think about it. And every once in a while I need to get my mom to drive me to a place because I don't drive. Mm-hmm. but it, I, I didn't put all the pieces together until my last few months of university. And then more as I started looking at job postings and everyone said, you needed a driver's license. Yes. At the time, yeah. At at the time, the Toronto star had a year long internship program, which they have now reinstated for those who've been following journalism news. The star internship is back Uh, for a few years. It wasn't, but when I was graduating school, that's what you wanted. You wanted a, a year long internship at the Toronto star. And my professors were like, Megan, like you just won this award and it is a big deal. Apply for the star. Okay, like this is a good, good idea. And I remember looking at the application guidelines and they said they needed a driver's license. Yeah. So I was like, well, what do I do with this? And I, I remember calling the Toronto Star asking me to speak to the person uh, who was in charge of the internships at that time and being like, I don't know what to do because I graduated top of my class with a degree in English and journalism and just won this award unanimously in a jury judged um, award selection. But I'm legally blind, so I don't have a driver's license for the safety of, you know, society. (laughs) And he was like, "Oh yeah," and he kind of seemed taken aback, but he was very gracious. So I was like, "You know, apply anyways." Um, and if it comes, like, if you will cross that bridge when we get to it, and everyone and their brother applies for this internship, so I was not selected for an interview. (laughs) Um, as many people also not selected for an interview. Um. But I do remember in those first years, it kept coming up. It would come up in job postings. For a while, I wouldn't apply to a job posting if I had it because I just convinced myself that this was not going to happen. Um, And then kind of realized that was a really bad attitude. It was wrong. So I, on a whim, applied for a job at a newspaper called the Yukon News, a community newspaper in Whitehorse, Yukon. And they wanted an interview and they wanted to hire me. And I told them, I don't have a driver's license. They said, we still want to hire you. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was not how this conversation was supposed to go. <laughs> um, so I, I took my first job in Whitehorse at the age of 23. Um, I was there for 14 months and two days. I know, Carrie, you've spent some time up there. Um, it is an incredible city. It is an incredible part of this country. Um, I think more people should go to the north and see it it is also so very sparsely populated and spread out with very little public transit options. Right.
0: Well, I was just going to say, and like, they, for, they are specifically for not having, I mean, we've talked about this before uh, on the show and it's comes up a lot. And when we talk about accommodations and this whole, this whole driver's license required for these jobs that technically there would, there's obviously workarounds that, you know, it's not like a bus driver where you need a license. It's a job that you can still be a reporter. You just need to yeah. have other means, but I can, I, I can imagine being somewhere like the Yukon with no public, like with, you know, spread out and public transit being a lot more harder to access i just imagine mm-hmm. that being more of a of a difficulty than you know somewhere here where transit and these options are available
2: right which it was and i tried to fight that as long as i could and then just kind of realized one day that i literally cannot move mountains <laughs> Cannot change geography. I'm not that powerful. You can't move Mount Logan there. Yeah. So um, I I was there for 14 months and two days. And then I moved to Toronto to take a certificate in publishing. I really wasn't sure if I wanted to be in journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, just for anyone who's an aspiring reporter out there, that's very common. Your first journalism job is going to be hard. Yep. It's going to suck at certain times. You will likely spend a lot of time in a bathroom crying. Um, that's actually a very common story, which I learned after I came to Toronto. Um, and it's it's the reality of the job, it's the reality of the industry. So yeah, I took a certificate in publishing and two weeks after school started, largely due to some events that were happening in Toronto's municipal um, politics in 2013 uh, due to a, a former now deceased mayor, I realized that I really did miss being an underserved. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I picked up, started uh, doing some more freelancing. And I've been freelancing more or less full time since 2014,
1: 2015. So we talk a lot about so many issues on outlook, but as we, as I've said, we're going to get into a lot more sort of of these more sensitive things this year. Um, not that we haven't before, but um, things like, so things like um, this, how disability and religion sort of um, meet and what what happens with mm-hmm. those things. And um, what would you say is one of some of the hardest things you've had to write about or cover as a journalist or in
2: a case you've written? Um, like many journalists who have disabilities, I did not want to cover disability when I first started out. Um, and then when I did, it would be because... I felt like I needed to because I wanted my boss to like me and I wanted to write about something I was good at. But then yeah, disability has become something that I've come to enjoy writing about. Um, but then it's difficult because I also have a disability. So when do you, when do I want to write the story about my life as opposed to someone else's life? So about a year ago, um, I, I mentioned earlier, I write for occasionally for a magazine called faith today. It's a national Christian magazine. And I pitched the editor, uh, who's an excellent editor, she's one of my favorite editors to work with, Um, this idea of writing a piece about what it was like, what it's like to live on social assistance.
1: That's another one we're going to cover this year, yeah.
2: Because for much of my adult life, the Ontario Disability Support Program has been a big part of my income, not so much in the last maybe 18 months. But for I lived most of my 20s in Toronto on an income that was maybe $1,200 a month if we're being generous. Yeah. So I wrote a personal essay about how that affected my relationship with God, um, scripture, uh, the church, and just really how I felt people needed to even understand poverty and this image that we can often have as... The quote-unquote poor are those people who live somewhere else, but they're yeah. not people that I actually know, that I'm in relationship with, that I see regularly, that I'd call my friend. Um, so that's really what we were doing is we're trying to investigate what does that look like and what does it mean and what what does following jesus which is how a lot of christians would describe christianity following jesus what does that look like when you live on social assistance what does that mean what are the questions about that and that was probably the easiest article i've ever written once i got my edits back for the first draft the first draft sucked My editor was super gracious and gave me like perfect feedback. And so I turned out this other one and it came very quickly, but it was also one of the hardest ones. I I did not tell hardly anyone that essay was coming out. Um, I didn't publicize it widely. My parents didn't know until they got a copy of the magazine in the mailbox because they're subscribers. Oh, okay. Um, And yeah, because it was a very personal um, essay of things that hurt. And questions and having confidence in answers and truth, even while you're living with unresolved questions and tension. And um, it's probably one of the pieces I'm most proud of, but emotionally it was harder. And I'd had some practice a couple years previous, 2017, I did a piece for CBC's Canada 150 project. Oh. um about what moving to white horse and back taught me about my disability in canada and i touched on like mental health issues and all that stuff that's related with disability too yeah. so i'd had some practice but this was the first time that i actually really explicitly talked about being a christian and having a disability um and even though it was to an audience of mainly fellow christians it was still kind of difficult putting that into words for people um but it's also been one that it's been interesting when people find out about it and they find out I'm the one who wrote it hearing their responses and how it's impacted the way they look at things or um even like resonates with their own personal experience and that's been really gratifying.
1: Right. Yeah, I know it's can be heavy stuff sometimes. How uh, you can balance all those things and then how family how family can read your writing like as a journalist you're mm-hmm. you're going to be out there. Yep. But, uh, yeah, I think
2: for me, we talked about balancing it. I think I just learned that it's not my job to keep everything in perfect balance. No. Um, you know, so I would say like, I've gotten through 32 years of visual impairment yet because of my faith, because of Jesus. I know there's people with disabilities who have terrible relationships with the church or religion, and I've had some pretty bad ones too. And so I think for me, a big breakthrough was realizing, like, I'm just a human being, and it is not my job to be able to hold all these things in balance together. It's not, like, I'm physically incapable of doing that. Um, So there's a lot of freedom for that. Because I know for me, for many years, I felt like I could not say publicly or even privately if I was having a bad day with my visual impairment. Like, we don't talk about that. Um, Because... For many families in my situation, um, my disability is a great thing. It's a great story. It's a story about how a mother and a child survived a very precarious medical situation, and that's great, and that's good, and that's wonderful. Um, but there's been some hard parts with it too. And how do how do you how do you live with both of those?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's it is one of those things that is would be tricky to manage, and it's the it's the balancing of of all of that. And I think that's great that you you know, get to a point and you are able to write articles about um, disability and things that maybe put yourself, you know, in the forefront a bit more, which, you know, can take some uh, adjustment to do, but that as well as doing those those types of things, you do write a lot of, about a lot of other amazing yeah. topics as well. Like um, I read a few articles, one where you were exploring residential schools in Canada through for Teach mm-hmm. magazine. You wrote a great article there. Um, there was one about autism that you wrote. So it just seems great that you're you're covering so many different areas and, you know, with disability, not just blindness, other disabilities, but also other areas as well.
2: Yeah, I actually don't really like writing about blindness because it's kind of like, well, like I don't even understand how it's a news story. I'm like, what? Like, I do this all the time. Um, so it takes me a little longer to be like, oh, right, this is actually important. Right. Um, but uh, <laughs> like, going back to writing about disability, um, I actually firmly believe, like, while personal memoir and experiences are important for people to hear that, there is a need for good, thorough reporting about disability politics and yes. policy in this country. Um, so my experiences as a child in school, and they're like, how do we get you support? That has to do with education policies, with funding, this with politics. Yeah. Um, and during COVID, getting to write about draft triage protocols, where there are documents telling healthcare professionals whose life is important enough to get a ventilator. Yeah, that's important. People need to know about that. Um, got to write about health, uh, home care for children with complex medical needs. That will blow your mind. Um, So it is, when it comes to disability representation in the media, I think there's the need for disabled journalists in all roles. Um, So that means behind the scenes too. That means the editors and the producers, people who are setting the agendas. Um, Mm -hmm. But also there needs to just be reporting on these social issues. You know, like 2019 Canada passes the Accessible Canada Act Act unanimously all party support it's federal legislation affects so many parts of this country and you'll hardly read about it
1: yeah and brian and i are discovering now as we're in our 30s and we have started doing outlook and and other things that like as much as i, I hated politics growing up right like everything is political right. like you said education and, and housing and and all these things and and health and so yeah it's it's great that you can explore all of that and yeah i we wanted to have you on Outlook because like, you know, you and I can relate with writing, especially, but journalism, like I think that is a a good thing. We need blind lawyers and we need legally blind journalists. And, and uh, it's important, more important than, yeah, you may be just writing a memoir about your life only.
2: Right. Like it's important that people see all of it. And I think there is a part of it too, and I'm probably going to get some flack here, but I think those of us who, are disabled, we need to let people who don't have disabilities write about disability. And yes, they need to be like taught how to do it appropriately. But if you are going to make the argument like many of us do, especially in the circle of parents that we grew up in, that when you include the child with the visual impairment, you've now included all children. You've now made your classroom easier for all kids, because if it's larger print, everyone can see it better. Shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, If we actually believe that, that universal design is universal and it works for everybody, then we need to let other people also into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't mean they always get to dictate the conversation, but they still need to be part of the process. Um, I think as a journalist who interviews disabled people... About their disabilities or their experiences, even like knowing how to speak to the media and knowing like I'm coming here as a professional, not as your friend, I will be friendly, I will be polite, I will be courteous, but I'm doing the job. And part of my job is to explain your disability to the public. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to advocate for yourself. You need to to say, this is my diagnosis. This is how it impacts me. This is what I need. And trust that I'm not going to turn you into a quote unquote inspiration porn or super crip. Mm-hmm. Or stuff like that. But this is factual information that needs to be on the public record. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, because if people don't have facts, they can't they can't do it. And I've just found that really interesting in the past few years, the difference between writing a personal memoir and doing objective reporting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and how, like, I love disability memoir. Um, I've got a bunch on hold at the library. Um, I am where I am today because when I was a kid, my mom handed me a Jean Little novel in a library where I learned about words and what it's like to read stories about disabled characters and non-disabled characters interacting together. Um, so I'm not going to diminish that, but you need both in terms of information that's out there for people and if you if we only have personal stories then people see disability as a personal issue and not a social issue no oh, that's a great point
1: yeah yeah it
0: definitely makes it like you say very very personal for one person you can feel that but to have it connect with everyone and to have that you know greater view of it to show that it's the society thing that needs to be worked on and i think that that's a a great point
2: yeah and like even going back to um when I, so I wrote a piece for the Walrus Magazine about uh, my reflections on Jean Little's life and death that came out in October. And I didn't think anyone else would care because it's pretty much the story of this visually impaired girl who finds these books by this visually impaired author. And then interactions I had with Jean when I was older, when I wrote her fan mail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought no one else would care. And the reaction I would get from people who, for all I know, don't have disabilities, they just liked good children's books and they'd also read these books, was really eye-opening for me and this realization of, like, non-disabled people can also relate to work by a disabled person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, it works both ways. Uh, So that was really cool and kind of a good reminder for me to, like, you know, like get over yourself. Um, if, if the art is good, if the quality is good, people should be able to quote unquote, look past your vision loss and just realize that was well done.
0: We are speaking with Megan Gilmore here today on Outlook, journalist and AMI reporter. We're down to about five minutes left. Time really flies. And there's been such so much to talk about. Um, so yeah, I think now, um, what, what else? What else did you want to discuss here, well, here with our last
1: like we gotta get we gotta get this is us in here just yeah, for anybody do. listening who's yeah, a fan of
0: course I almost forgot
1: <laughs> how could you Brian?
0: I know right I'm the <laughs>
1: Brian's gotta start watching it it, start it is available it. on Netflix so but um yeah so this is writing and now um this is us is something Megan and I um relate with on each other and so it was what season
2: four when they introduced season four yeah last season so um we mentioned earlier in this podcast that I read an of prematurity which spoiler alert is the same diagnosis yeah. as the character Jack Damon, who is introduced um early on in season four. Karen and I may have spent like two and a half hours dissecting this <laughs> on a previous phone call. This might have happened. And yeah, like there was it was really fun for me watching that episode where his character blindness is introduced because we do meet him before we learn that he's blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was watching it with a friend of mine who's fully sighted. And there's this scene at the beginning of the show and she's like, oh, he's blind. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, how do you know this? Like, how can you see that someone is blind? And she's like, here, like, let me rewind it. So she's rewinding it and like showing me these things that he noticed about how he was cleaning up a plate, but not looking at the plate he was looking up. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a thing. And then there was this moment of like, huh. So like the sighted person in the room has figured out the character is blind, before the blind person does. That's uh-huh. ironic. Um, but he, like, his character has the same diagnosis as me. And it was really kind of fine, at least for me, to watch a family get that announcement on TV. Uh, knowing that my parents had gone through a similar thing years mm-hmm. earlier. My parents don't watch the show. So I called my mom after this episode. And I was like, trying to convince her. You know, that she really wanted... And isn't this great, Mom? And, like, the actor is legally blind. Uh, he has a different eye condition, but the actor who plays Jack in his adult life is, is legally blind. And, they're, and they're, NBC has been very big on getting visually impaired children to play Jack in all his stages of life. I got to uh, interview the mother of one of the actors last year. Wow, um, that's cool. cool. Yeah, and so I'm telling my mom, like, isn't this, like, so great? Like, yay, representation. And she's just, like... Oh. And I'm like, but mom, like, it's like your life. It's on TV. Isn't this so cool? She's like, it's kind of boring. Like, why mm. would anybody, well, I guess if people want to watch a TV show about that, they can, but you know. Uh Different reactions. Like, Thanks, yeah. Thanks but- mother. And you know, and I was talking with one of my colleagues at AMI who's also a big, this is us fan about how we were feeling about this and this struggle of in a show that has made diversity its calling card on so many areas. Yeah, race and... Uh, Grace, race, gender, everything. like everything. Yeah. Um That they waited until season four to have a prominent character with a disability isn't that kind of late. But yeah. then we were talking about how, in a way, it's a good thing because by that point, you're so invested in this family. Mm. Yeah. And then there's a yep. child born and there's this diagnosis. And I was like, oh, so it's like I'm my parents' friends now. <laughs> you know, like, I know this family... And then all of a sudden there's a premature birth, which, um, well, like, and I don't want to diminish that, like that is, is a scary and it's a precarious situation, but I always find that people who haven't had a preemie in their life, they talk about it in much more dire terms than my parents ever have. And they're the ones who actually went through it.
1: Yeah. Like I, I, we could talk about this all show, but I had to slip it at the end. (laughs) Thank you, Megan.
2: But if you guys would like a bonus episode called Carrie and Megan Talk, this is us, just send them feedback. Yeah, yeah. We'll oblige. Thank you. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah,
0: thanks. We really appreciate it. And I think if anyone just looks up Megan Gilmore on Google, you know, you'll find articles everywhere. So
2: Um, it's Megan M-E-A-G-A-N Gilmore with two L's, two L's. So G-I-L-L-M-O-R-E. Perfect. All right, we'll read check out some of her stuff. So thanks, Megan. You're welcome.
0: Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB and
2: on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.